So a couple of weeks ago, I tried to bring together three of my favorite Kenyans for a special podcast episode. Well, I only managed two. Oreo Kolo, a well-known commentator on Matas Kenya, and Nanjala Nyabola, writer and political analyst. And we talked about activism, tech, politics, the media, Africa, and much more. It's a really good listen. Oh, by the way, I finally managed to speak to Nanjira Sambuli, my other favorite Kenyan. So watch out for that episode as well. But for now, here is Ori and Nanjala. Enjoy. Thank you for being here, uh, Nanjala and Ori. I just want to start with you, Ori. You've been uh, working in civic spaces for, for years, uh, you know, always building and influencing. I mean, what are the key lessons that you've learned when it comes to bringing about change in societies? Uh, thanks, Dickens, for having us over and for hopefully pulling this off uh, <laughs> with three of us are, are together on the same podcast. Um, I would say a number of things that are not necessarily kind of deep sort of aha moments, but just really things from observing either progress or setbacks in the civic space over time. Uh, the first one is the need for eternal vigilance. Um, you know, there's a tendency to sort of think, well, when you've made particularly huge gains on the rights front or on, uh, as we're seeing in Kenya now with the constitution and uh, thinking it's time to move on to the next thing. Uh, Nigeria, we were talking earlier about press freedom and sort of the intense harassment, jailing, abduction mm-hmm. of journalists that seemed reminiscent of kind of the military days. And now we're seeing that in 2019. Um, the need for eternal vigilance when you do make gains, um, kind of like a garden that you constantly have to weed and prune. Um, The second one, I think it's, uh, I'm talking about this a lot more. I just think we need to be led by people who love us Hmm. or like us even. Like. We'll accept like. Yeah, I mean, just, or maybe even not haters. I don't know because some variation of the same. Because and particularly in Kenya in the region, I, I just wonder what goes through the the heads of our leaders across different spaces. Maybe not just in government. Um, when they put in place policies that are anti people. And to their people, even hurting their people, um, and there's not even a, a rationale for it. And right? the justification well, about, is also contemptuous. Yeah. yeah, because we can, because we can, or you know, this is this is what these people like. They don't care. So it's it's um, a fundamental. I mean, you you can sort of you know protest and and do all sorts of things and push for regulations, but if you're led by people who fundamentally think that you're idiots or that mm. you're um you don't deserve oh. a life of dignity so you know yeah uh, but know. what about you know you get the leaders you deserve they are basically a reflection of who you are hmm. you know i i take this criticism always with that particular perspective with a pinch of salt because on one hand i always ask kenyans can you say with certainty that every single person who became president after an election won that election in the last 25 years. Like, can you say with certainty that every vote that was counted was the vote, the correct vote and everything? And so on some regard, I, 
I ask people, members of the public, to give cut themselves some slack in the sense that you didn't necessarily um, choose or, you know, there's a lot of things that have happened that we, we have to cut ourselves some slack. But that means that doesn't mean necessarily that we are off the hook completely. Because on the other side is, okay, then what are you doing to take that back? So you know someone has stolen an election. You know someone has done something bad. It's evident. And like Ori was saying, it's contemptuous. Like, I know you know that I stole this election. Okay, then what are you doing to get that back? On that regard, then I say, well, okay, we have maybe dropped the ball on um, demanding accountability and, and demanding justice. Um, but when I think at the, at, the, at the front, when it comes to did you actually choose these leaders, I think it's a little bit more complicated. Um, I think a lot of people do feel like they didn't choose the leaders that they have and they are not quite sure how to untangle themselves from that particular Mess. And, and if we move beyond that, I mean, so, you know, elections is just one. In fact, I've sort of shifted my focus a lot yeah. just from elections. It's a moment in time mm-hmm. uh, because then it absolves. Okay, so you, you ele- whoever you elected is who you elected. They still, you're paying them. <laughs> or whether they got there, they, mm-hmm. you know, there's still room to keep them mm-hmm. in check after um, certainly we have a lot more space to do it. Uh, whether you made your mistakes by voting three times. <laughs> uh, kind of encouraged when I see like the petition going on yeah. in Campbell County where people are like, okay, we screwed up and now we want to cost correct. Yeah. And there's a question even before we get to the rigging of choice. You know, we just had the Kibra by-election and you could say there were 54, uh, I don't know how many, no, 24 candidates. 24 candidates. But going by the media, you would think, you know, it was a clash of the titans and do or die. And, you know, by election actually is a good opportunity for voters to vote Mm -hmm. removed from kind of the national dynamics. And so, you know, was that, you know, was that a choice Mm -hmm. or fair? And and so more broadly, um, before we even get to the actual voting and before we, we talk about the evisceration of chapter six, for instance, That's all these protections, yes, mm. because I think we do have a tendency, this is a third lesson I'd say I've learned in this work, perhaps to ask too much of the citizen. Mm. Yeah. To ask uh, too much of the citizen. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, uh, there's a book, there's no such thing as a rational voter. Yeah. You know, like it's emotions yeah. anywhere. You know, it's like your party or your religion or your uh, choices, how you feel about certain moral values or class or whatever, or you're influenced by capital in some places, lobbying, tears, bribing, however you want to say. And so, presuming that these are all rational decisions, and if I presented you, with kind of the best package of things to make the right choice, you know, we we should engage with where people are, and that many times it's not rational. Second, outside of voting again, you know, we say, okay, go to your budget hearings, uh, participate in your CIDP or whatever, and do this, and you're supposed to read all the newspapers yeah. and make informed choices and uh, protest and, and do what... I, you know, I've gone to me and said, how many of us here have, us who are privileged and have time and resources, whatever, have ever gone to a budget hearing? Mm. 
So it's, it's like work for some other people. Yeah. Uh, uh, people should do it. No, not even. No, citizens. We're saying mm-hmm. citizens even. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to the role of intermediaries mm-hmm. because we have moved away and sort of said, oh, we don't need civil society or mm-hmm. activists or a strong media. There is a role for intermediaries. It's too much. The average citizen either doesn't care or wants to watch Netflix. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, we should just accept. And, and, and there are moments where they might engage and, and not. And for them, they say, I voted. Either I voted and my guy won or the process is rigged, but yeah. I tried, yeah. whatever. And think about how do we bolster the role of intermediaries who can sort of bridge this gap between the governing and the governed. Um, because we have, I mean, in a realistic, especially in times when there's lots of economic pressures and other frustrations, what is a realistic expectation um, of what an engaged citizen looks like? So, yeah. I, you know, that's, I, I don't know how you feel yeah. about that. Yeah. And, and that's actually a really, really nice segue to, um, you know, my next question just to bring you in uh, again. Uh, Nanjal, I mean, you wrote a book, uh, Digital Democracy, Analog Politics, How the Internet Era is Transforming Kenya. And it kind of captures what we have just been discussing. Could you just maybe just briefly tell us why you wrote this book? And obviously, it's been a year since you launched it. What are the lessons? Um, I think the main reason why I wanted to write this book was I wanted to fix a, a transition that Kenya was going through into a particular... Uh, package because I think there was a lot of changes that were happening in the society and there was a lot of uh, two steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, one step back that was happening and I think a lot of the things were getting lost, all of the nuances were getting lost in a broad meta-narrative about Kenyan politics and how Kenyan politics works. And especially, you know, just to build on what Ari was saying, the idea that um, politics only happens at the national level, that it's only the big men when they're competing, that that's politics. And everything else that people are doing, organizing, resisting, tweeting, talking to each other, building communities, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is who are the big men and how do they interact with each other. So the book was also an, an attempt to find where people are doing politics and how they're experiencing um, this digital transformation and the digital as an entry point to understanding political transformation. Um, and it, it has, it's been a year, it's been almost exactly a year. And one of the most important things that I've learned is that I think a lot of people, first of all, were expecting a tech book. And I always have to say this when I give presentations, like this is not a book about technology. It's not going to teach you how to code or, you know, how to uh, build an algorithm or whatever. But, um, Really, it's a book about people and how people use technology. And so the conversations that have come from it have been a lot of people who are, had, you know, Kenya is always held up as this like tech utopia in Africa. It's changing, but it had this reputation. And I think a lot of people in that regard had this mental separation between the people, the society and the technology. And so the idea that you could just keep building things and rolling things out and deploying things, and then the people would somehow adapt to that. Um, So the main conversation that I've been having is saying, well, hang on, this thing went this way because Kenyans had been doing this other thing. This role, for example, that social media is playing in usurping traditional media has everything to do with how traditional media is structured and how traditional media has behaved over the last 25 years. Um, and so that's been an interesting message to have to keep repeating and to have to keep sort of um, reiterating over the year. And I'm pleasantly surprised by how many people are receptive to it. Um, and, 
you know, seeing a lot more um, activism in the digital rights space in Kenya because we're seeing a lot, again, a lot of people realizing that this is a, you can't just leave this to technology or to the power that's rolling out the technology, that we actually have to understand the societies and how the societies are going to use the tech. Yeah. And, and Ori, you've mentioned the media several times. I guess maybe could, you could just briefly tell us why you think, especially in, in Africa, why the media is really key when it comes to those kind of positive changes we want to see on the continent. Um, so the media is key on a number of fronts. I mean, first is the traditional um, role of the fourth estate um, that should be playing the role of informing uh, as a basic, um, ideally informing in an impartial way where possible, uh, sort of just the facts, uh, analyzing um, because they have the capacity to sort of have a bird's eye view of what's going on. And, and placing things in context that are happening, especially in today's world where you're bombarded with so much. Um, I think accountability mm. uh, traditionally has been a, a huge role. I mean, they, you know, you have to always ask yourself, why do they go after the journalists first? Um, anytime there's a, a wave of oppression. Mm. Um, and why do they set up all these media farms and bots and... Yeah. So you know, it's not because they can. Um, it's because the role of information is more critical than ever um, in today's world. So I think those roles of informing, of uh, analyzing, of accountability, um, and going back to my earlier point, as an intermediary, sort of a bridge uh, between the, the governing and the governed, uh, those are critical roles that they play, but in a very, very challenging environment um, in yeah. today's world. I don't know if you wanted to add anything from Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the big elements of democracy that often gets lost in the conversation is the public information role and the role of having a media that you do trust mm -hmm. and that you can say, well, I don't have to read the whole bill. I don't have to go and sit in six hours, 18 hours of public hearings. I can pick up a newspaper and I can instantly understand what this bill was about and how it will affect uh, my life. And a lot of that has to do with trust. A lot of that has to do with the quality of journalism. A lot of that has to do with the freedom and the ability of journalists to do their work. And in the last 20 years, all of those things have been compromised in Kenya. All of those things have been compromised in some way. And so part of what we're seeing, this apathy or this, not necessarily apathy, but inability to grasp the entirety of what's being lost um, in the democratic space mm -hmm. is because people don't really fully understand. They don't see how things are connected until after the fact. Um, you see this conversation about debt, for example, and the, the line that, well, Japan has as much debt as we do, and these other countries also have debt. And you say, well, the role of the media in that place is to put these things in context. It's an infographic that tells you, well, actually, this is how Japan spends its uh, public debt, and this is not how Kenya spends its public <laughs> debt. Or, you know, this is how, this is what a Japanese prime minister has to go through before he can authorize these astronomical amounts of debt. This is what a Kenyan our president has to do, which is a completely different. And, you know, the, the, the strange thing is if you are paying attention to the handful of conversations, you realize that this information is out there. No one is hiding it. It's not, 
Um, it's already on Twitter. It's I, on I see Twitter. it every day. It's a, you know everything. <laughs> but what's missing is the person who can then... That's what newspapers and television and all of that is for, is to put all of these different things together and to force you as the reader, as the citizen, to be able to process complexity very quickly. Um, daily newspapers, you know, the changing every day, but so that when the moment comes where you have to make a decision, whether to participate in a protest, to go out and vote, to do whatever, that you have the tools to be able to make that informed decision. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're missing out right now. Okay. I think there's something else, though, that has changed, which I didn't realize uh, the conversation I was having with uh, Shiba Hurst mm. uh, uh, mm. uh, about a week ago, actually. Mm. on uh, We're talking about uh, too early for birds and yeah. what that is doing in terms of narrative yeah. Um, yeah. in very interesting ways, mm. both history um both uh challenging accessible yeah. all of these things and what does that mean or yeah. what are we missing because you know there's also this that uh, kenyans don't like reading <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. uh, when you talk to Je- oh the, this is what they want we are, yeah. we, we, it's it's regular ruto because that's what sells whatever and all these things is like this is how it is and i'm always pushing like you know, is it? This is just like you know. This yeah. is Kenya. What does what does that mean? Yeah. And and she said she was talking to her mom. Like, did we miss something along the mm-hmm. way? And said, but we lost. Uh, and again, going, we always go back and ask why do, yeah. why did like Moy go after the universities? Mm-hmm. Why did he go after the arts before he even got to the mm-hmm. politicals? The first three things he attacked were media, universities, universities intellectuals, and artists. Mm-hmm. Now, the first folks to go into exile, actually, before we even got to Koikis mm-hmm. and everybody else, I said because there was kind of a triangle yeah. uh, where you had the academics and there was the role of the public intellectual mm. who set kind of the larger context and examined things more broadly so you're not just in your day-to-day mm. situation. There were the artists who then sort of made this accessible either through drama, mm. through theater, mm. through books, and art and so on. Mm. And then there was the media that was kind of sort of a connection between the three. And if you look today and you say, where are those three located yeah. now? Yeah. Very disconnected. Very disconnected. And no one has even, I was like, wow, I'd never even <laughs> thought about that in that way. Yeah. And so I think there's also something more broadly that we're missing. Mm. It, becomes quite easy to sort of dump on the media and Gideri media and whatever. Mm. Uh, but they're also anchored in a context yeah. um, and quite lonely, I think, sometimes, yeah. where there are multiple pressures. They are writing the story. Sometimes there's no pickup, there's no yeah. follow-up. We move on to the next thing. Um, fighting your editors, trying to mm. kill your story. No how, how do they fix that? How, how does the media fix that? I don't think it's just a responsibility of the media. I think mm. is is for us to kind of broadly, then those yeah. of us who are thinking or working or doing things, um, beginning to weave those threads between yeah. different communities of practice um, and, and saying, okay, how, is there a way or an opportunity or possibility? Mm. Um, and that's why I pointed to two early for birds because I think they're onto something interesting there. Mm. Not just in the play, if you look at who comes in, mm. who are the writers, who are the, you know, they're all, we know them as 
kind of different personalities. Mm. They're not a theater group. Mm. They're a collection of different individuals who've come together to create something. Yeah. And can we replicate that within the media space? Um, a, a sort of conversations we need to have. I think second, um, if you look at someone like The Nation, um, you know, you have to wonder, I always wondered, like, okay, so Galava and Gado survived, like, yeah. <laughs> more here than, than this was the government that, like, uh, and what they lost, I mean, and we all know everyone has interests and stuff, but they had managed to um, build a hold on to something um, as far as a brand of yeah. journalism. Maybe you didn't always trust it, but, you know, there, there was a brand there that, conveyed some trust and certainly the numbers and everything else reflects the loss of the brand yeah. and so ironically they thought they were doing the commercially prudent thing, prudent thing. Mm. and again so it takes me back to this when you say Kenyans like this I, I mean I'm like well I don't know it's not reflected <laughs> <laughs> you, no. you, you know and, and so I think rethinking the compromises perhaps that yeah. were made and and at what cost so you feel that there is, we are kind of going through a moment of rebuilding and almost discovery as well. Figuring out who we are. Who we yeah. were. Who we were are, yeah. um, I'd say, you know, it's always really interesting to sort of see now the standard uh, headline. You know, everyone is like, wow, you know, how he says, <laughs> so I'm like, well, is it really just, is it, you know, can we interrogate beyond it? Like, okay, yeah. Galava is back, another standard is mm. back. Um, and people love it. So why are we not responding more consistently to the fact mm. that there appears to be a demand for better journalism? Yeah, that's an important question. I, I, you, you mentioned too early for Baz, and I actually went to watch them, and, um, you know, as, as everyone else, I think I was, I was blown away. Uh, especially, um, the storytelling was amazing. The, uh, the cast, you know, just the, it was diverse, it was young, uh, that made a big impression on me. The audience, who are obviously young as well, so there's something happening there. But then, what? This is what, what I kind of want to hear. What you think, um, Nanjala? This is a play that has organically grown from Twitter. Mm -hmm. It basically sells its tickets on Twitter and the interactions on Twitter. You know, taking, uh, building the audience uh, online, and bringing them offline. Mm. And these are networks that I know you, uh, you know, been really keen on monitoring and 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 seeing how they, um, how they relate and how they perform online, and maybe you can just give me, you know, obviously we were talking about Kenya, but maybe you can just talk about Africa, mm -hmm. like what's your assessment of these networks and especially how they influence governance in Africa. I think the most important thing to remember about digital networks is their efficacy will necessarily depend on how they're connected to what's happening offline and their ability to plug into to amplify what's happening offline. So you have a lot of countries whereby the people who are online are very insulated and they're trying to do a very specific thing, mm. sort of the influencer selling things, uh, approach to things. And that's a very elite group of people. And they're not necessarily trying to advance a political conversation or to be part of a political debate. And as a result, you end up with um, the digital being very separated from the political life. But I think in a lot of um, African countries, what we're seeing is people who have had a taste for political freedom 
and have had that taste sort of be compromised mm. and not actualized, the digital becomes a very potent place because it, it, it doesn't have the same restrictions that they would have if they were trying to do the same thing offline. So I'm thinking about countries like Kenya, um, Nigeria, Senegal, um, Cote d'Ivoire, um, the DRC, where we've seen uh, Burkina Faso, where we've seen movements and, and really important dialogues incubated online because the offline space was being, had been free for a second and then sort of restricted again slowly. And um, what the, the potency then comes from, okay, then how do we turn it into something else? You know, you're talking about this play. Well, it's one thing for people to have banter on Twitter and to have jokes, but it's like, okay, someone has to get up and say, we're going to book a theater and we're going to sell tickets and we're going to take this risk. There's an element of risk that's involved, financial risk, political risk, whatever. And that's the same everywhere. You know, look, look at Lucha Ardisi. Um, They're coming up against an election against a person who's refused to cede power and they're saying, well, Lucha Ardisi is mostly very young activist. The, the leader, the, one of the leaders founders who was murdered, uh, Luke Nkulula was only 33 years old. And what they did was they, they took that energy offline because they knew a shutdown was coming. They knew that they, uh, when the election came, they were going to pull it offline. So they mobilized online and they made the the hashtag a moment, a conversation that was in, that attracted a lot of people, but then turned that to a door-to-door campaign around the election, especially in Eastern Congo, to say, well, vote wisely, think about this, even though in the end, the election in Eastern Congo was delayed or whatever, but it, it still created a very potent political moment. So for me, the power of these networks that we build on, online is really it's about fi- helping people find each other mm. people who would have a hard time finding mm. each other otherwise mm. and it's about helping giving those people sort of the intellectual tools to be able to engage um with each other about the things that they're interested in and then the potency then comes on okay how do we plug in all this energy into what's happening offline how do we turn this into a door knocking campaign or get out the vote campaign or a vote accountability campaign or uh, anti-feminist march or, or sorry, a feminist march or, you know, anti-misogyny march. How do we do that? Um, and there's so many examples. I, uh, the one that I love the most is Sudan, because for the first six months of the Sudan uh, revolution, everybody was saying, was dismissing it, not everybody, but a lot of people were dismissing it as a digital kind of elitist conversation because the diaspora, the Sudanese diaspora, was mostly using social media to get their message out. And so the government shut down the social media and they thought, well, that's it. They're never going to be able to mobilize. And then yet the biggest march, the biggest, biggest turnout, the June 2nd, I think, uh, protests, they had 2 million people marching in Khartoum. No social media, no internet. How do you get two million people to come out into the street if you don't have that? Well, it's because the six months that had preceded that had also been influenced by a lot of those connections of, yes, we're building this diaspora or this online presence, but we are also doing public education on the ground mm-hmm. and we're connecting these things together. And so the role of the diaspora is to keep the message online while the people in the country are offline. And there's this wonderful synergy, um, a lot more research is coming out a lot of art art really. i was gonna say i mean it's art. just it's, a, it's <laughs> incredible and uh, you know they've they've looked at this and they've said oh you're gonna take the internet well good for you we're going to go and paint our walls yes and play music and, and play and music have concerts. and do all of this stuff and it's that really powerful synergy of mediums that's happening in sudan that i think really points to the way forward is we can't just do things 
and stop at the digital and stop at the online. It's okay, what comes next? How do these things connect to each other? Yeah. Or I don't know if you wanted to add to, to that or No, I think, you know, absolutely right. And again, going, you know, an observation, um, having to talk about trends, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of the role of musicians and mm-hmm. artists and actors and you know, with uh, was it Banksy ran yeah. for office and did fairly well yeah. as an Hollywood <laughs> actor and yeah. actually the decent yeah. good agenda, Bobby Wine yeah. in Uganda, um, in Senegal you have yeah. the Senegalese rappers. Um, you know, that I'm really interested in Burner Boy as kind of <laughs> <laughs> they reincarnate you know, they reincarnated Felakuti by kind of in like his own, yeah, in his, his with his pocket. aesthetic and his own yeah. way, and I was like, oh my god, it's only twenty eight. You know what's going on there? Um, so they, they, there is something, uh, and and so Sudan was really interesting because all those components came. You know, those poetry, those music, those protests, uh, it was political, and. This what are what are they now Gen Z this next now next, we're Gen Z Gen Z I mean Gen Z <laughs> yeah Gen Z, uh, Gen yeah, Z. Um, you know I love them yeah because they are exhibiting imagination mm. uh, and we come from a generation where um, gosh. <laughs> You, you 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 keep your head down, keep your head down. and survive and yeah. get out if you can, yeah. right? And that was because our parents were like, you know, sort of post independence, mm. and they had all these hopes, mm. and it just ended in in tears and uh, pain, particularly <laughs> if you're from the wrong tribe or yeah. not connected, whatever. And so, you know, so we were raised to just go to school, work hard, keep your head down, get out of here, and you know. Like, don't look back if don't you can, back. or just survive. Mm. And so, even though we were more exposed, and you know, there's that we're tentative. Yeah. yeah. Everything we do, and I'll put my hand there, it's, it's tentative, yeah. always at the margins, just yeah. push not too much there. Yeah. Um, you know, then I think the next generation is just about freedom and all about yeah. me, but not really testing. I, I, I love what I'm seeing that this next level is something that we sorely need and saying let's break it all down yeah. mm. uh, everywhere in work in art in yeah. you know how I show up um, yeah. in music and no it, human is limited yeah what's, what's no human is limited well, yeah what's, what's after you know what, what's yeah. after in language and um, if you read young African writers now it's a very different um, more, kind daring. Of, more daring mm. and so I think there's something there mm-hmm. uh, it's about imagination that's really I think yeah. um, very positive I don't know where it will go yeah. but I love that their starting position is not why it's why not, why not? Mm. and uh, just going back to the media again I mean you are right as we speak in the middle of something Interesting and exciting and everything cool. <laughs> um, else. Yes, I'm recruiting yeah. all of you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just talk. You know, tell tell me a little bit about um, you know the media hub that uh, you're part of, and you know, hopefully, gonna be launching uh, soon, uh, or probably has launched by the time this <laughs> podcast <laughs> goes out. Yes. Yeah, so the the Bar- the Baraza Media Lab. Um, 
something we're working on in collaboration um, with a few folks um, to include Meta, um, where we're partnering um, to come up with a physical space um, that has, I think, three aims, and it's kind of a response to this concern that we, we how do we either restore trust in media, um, how do we begin to collaborate so that they can address and respond to the challenges, both political mm. and business challenges? And is, is it just traditional media as we know it? No. So it's not a journalism. It's not just journalism focused. It's focused on media more broadly um, to include whether you want to think about photography, uh, whether you want to think about cartoonists, whether it's radio, it's podcast. Um, but I think this, again, role of, of, of the media, if you're informing, if you're educating, um, if you're analyzing, if you're breaking it down, if you're being accessible towards the public interest, you know. Uh, I remember when we had one of their earlier workshop sessions and it was titled, you know, how do we restore public interest sort of media in Kenya. And someone was like, have we ever had public interest? Oh, oh. Public interest, but I was like, whoa, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to tackle that question. But I think it's, it's kind of, you know, media for who, for the, in service of the public, and to include whether it's entertain, educate, inspire, challenge, um, accountability, and so on. So it's a physical space um, based in 95 Riverside Drive. And the first focus is going to be headed up uh, in terms of content. Uh, Christine Mungai, very excited. Mm. Yay. Yay. Uh, is uh, going to be curating the program. It's kind of hopefully a cross between like Neiman Lab and a Frontline Club and mm. with a special Kenyan sauce. Um, tea will be served. <laughs> tea will be served. Hot tea. Uh, that, but, you, you know, that, but then is that is responsive to us and just saying, you know, we have our, you know, there's some things we can borrow and learn from, but, mm. you know, how do we create in a way that makes sense for us, and how do we create a space where then other communities can plug into, whether it's civil society, whether it's tech, whether it's policymakers, whether it's business, it's in business interest to actually have yeah, yeah. a healthy media ecosystem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, starting point, if you create a space, if you create a community, if you generate sort of good programming, whether it's training, whether it's fireside chats, uh, whether it's providing little funds for experimentation, that something interesting will happen. It's called Baraza. The logo is like a three-legged stool because we're saying kind of it's around collaboration, community. Hopefully we'll build sort of ideas that regenerates the space. Yeah, mm. so people should gather and become the firewood and light of fire. Yes, and all of that. How far do you want to take this metaphor as a It's sold. I'm joining. Nanjala, I want to go back to your book again and... Um, I think Ali asked you about the lessons. So if there was just one chapter you had to add to your book, what would it be about? The thing that I really wanted to write, well, there's two things that I really wanted to write about. So two chapters. Two chapters. <laughs> and, and my editor said, if you add one more word to this manuscript, I will charge you per word. I said, okay. <laughs> I've, I've heard. Um, one of the things that I wanted to write about was the to dig a little bit deeper into the negative side of how social media organizing is is working in Kenya mm. and especially how police officers are, are mobilizing vigilante groups um on social media because i think that also speaks to where people are 
in terms of trusting institutions and especially the police as trusting institutions, as institutions. Um, and really the main reason was that there was absolutely no space, but I know that there are some researchers who are thinking about this right now because it really has uh, connections to how institu the, the, the place that institutions have now occupy in our public imagination. Um, and the fact, and also accountability. So then what do you do if a police officer puts a hit job out on a 17-year-old boy on Facebook? Whose responsibility is that? You know, how do you how do how do Kenyan institutions respond to that? How do international institutions respond to that? Um, the other chapter that I would probably um, add to the mix is I would love to have been able to think um, more deeply about the role of money in political behavior in Kenya, and not for Kenya just not just for Kenya, but also as a starting point for thinking about the world. Mm. Because I, this is something that I think we, we as a global community have kind of um, been caught unawares by the speed at which and the extent to which money is shaping the political space. And I say that because the same problems that we're puzzling over in Kenya, they're puzzling over mm. in the US, they're puzzling over um, in, you know, the other day the New York Times did an article about Russians' social media influence in Madagascar. And it's set up as this whole um, Cold War resurgence, oh my gosh. And then I, you know, I, I, I said on Twitter, I said, well, when you're done doing Russia, do America. <laughs> and then when you're done with that, do Britain. And then when you're done with that, do France. That's and then, you, you know, Brexit experts. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're a Brexit expert. You know, go down the list. Because the, thing, the, the thing that you're afraid of, I as an African citizen, I'm not afraid of. I don't care if the person who is yeah. helping my oppressor steal an election is Russian or American or French or British. What happens in the end is that I have a, a problem hmm. and I have an election that I can't believe in. And what does then, what comes next? And I guess that would be the, the final chapter because I stopped just before, I stopped writing just before um, the, the handshake. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I would have loved to go in a little bit more about what comes after that because I think that, again, with the influence of money and political behavior and the political space, people are losing trust mm. in things that are integral to social stability and into society's functioning. Mm. And if people don't believe that their votes matter, and if people don't believe that the system matters, and they don't believe that media matters, and they don't believe, you know, I, I talk to journalists and they're like, well, every time I go in, you saw the, I think you saw the video of the journalist who went out to do an interview at a high school, and the girls, it was a girls' boarding school, they stoned them and kicked them out shouting, Gideri media, Gideri media. Mm. That's a problem. Mm. What is, the, the, the chapter that I would have loved to do is to an ex exploration of trust and the intersection between the digital and trust in public institutions, both positive and negative. Because again, I think this is one thing that we are, um, we and we, in the biggest sense of the word, we're not ready for. This is why people are out in the streets in so many countries, I think, because I think the underestimating the extent to which these things matter, yeah. undermining institutions matters. Mm. And if people think that putting a paper, a piece of paper in a box doesn't matter, the next thing is, okay, but let me do something that does matter. Let me go throw some stones. You know, yeah. let me go and set some things on fire. Let me go in. And, and I'm not saying that as a normative statement. I absolutely think that everybody has a right to protest. 
I, I, I'm not absolutely saying that as a normative statement. I'm just saying I don't think people have sat in the discomfort of what money is doing to trust in politics and in the political space. Yeah. And Ori, I'm, I must admit, uh, yes, as I was preparing for this interview, there was, I was looking for one tweet. Well, I was not successful because I can't quote it now. But I think it was something in the um, realm of you were more, more willing to work with these established institutions, at least those that you can work with. Yeah. And the reason why that stuck with me is that I felt that there was some sort of um, admission like, hey, yes, they have their faults, but it's the government. They still control the access that probably I'll have to you know, use to get to where I want to get to. Could you maybe talk us through about what, you know, how, how do you actually accomplish that? But and by institutions, it's not just government, right? It could be, again, media institutions. So rather than say, let's kind of come up with innovative new models, you know, the fact is... Like most, parallel models. Yeah, most Kenyans listen to radio and watch TV and read newspapers. Now, they could be doing other things and on WhatsApp and podcasts and YouTube and what have you. But the primary channels to which you reach most of people is um, media, for instance, mainstream media, um, or health, you know, the primary uh, sort of delivery is still public hospitals. So I, I guess looking at public goods and institutions mm -hmm. more broadly um, and engaging with them, and, and it's messy. And I think there's a tendency... Um, sometimes when you're too outside to, to get a, to get a, either to opt out and be like, Ooh, I don't do that, or to get on a high horse and say, well, you know, it's everything is so black and white. <laughs> and so, you know, just get it together. And so you could do that in perpetuity, actually, and not move any needle. Um, <laughs> and so realizing also that the in that messiness, there's kind of a muscle that's built and you know and I observed this during the last campaigns um, mm. where you know many of us don't do retail politics or campaign don't even understand it but you realize the other side is there day in day out mm -hmm. um, they don't get tired they engage mm -hmm. they shift they adjust they move they mm -hmm. you know they, they respond and you have to give credit to that willingness yeah. to get in there and, and to meet people kind of where they're at, which is something I think we need to do more of. Yeah. So it's just a realization. I don't think it was like a grand aha moment. Um, there's also a book that you know, I read and felt, oof, ouch. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to look for it. I think it's, um, it's, it's called Blueprint Revolution. Mm. Blueprint for Revolutions by the guy who was behind Otpor in, in Serbia. But the book is not really about sort of how do you start a revolution. It's really, it talks about, it was that book in a conversation I had with someone who was um, very involved in the apartheid movement, mm -hmm. uh, anti-apartheid movement. And both of them sort of sparked something in me because there's also a tendency to get frustrated mm -hmm. with uh, people, why don't they get it? Why don't they see that these guys are just corrupt? And he said, even when the... Um, Anti-apartheid. It was not obvious yeah. that you know they're like, yeah, we know this, but who are you guys? You're just mm -hmm. some lawyers, some intellectuals. They're trying to. 
Oh, really? You're, you've come from your Fortier <laughs> degree, and now you're really going to take yeah. on the system? Like, yeah, right. Well, oh, really? Yeah. 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 And they had to shift um, in those early movements were really about social justice and not just saying we're anti, mm. but here's how well, we would for. rule if we won. And these are the things that would deliver. So a lot of what's not covered, the anti-apartheid move, how much of that was underpinned by social justice yeah teaching so they teach bantu you know many teachers were involved mm. they teach that and then there was like yeah. political school uh mm. they would run schools in the evening they would sort of or in hospitals hospitals and figure out how to deliver services and this is the same thing this book talks about that if you're trying a lot of sort of people working on the change space you know our orientation is how do you move people mm. From here, at, you know, we're going to take them to some nirvana, yeah. uh, and not doing the work of locating ourselves where they? where they are mm -hmm. and moving along with them. Yeah. And so we're just saying, here, you know, come here, 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 here. And uh, so I think that those two things, where you say they're messy, it's what we have now. Mm -hmm. We can't not. Um, we have to at least attempt and constantly keep, keep attempting where possible to engage. Sometimes it might be necessary to step out. And when we do, it's not with an orientation that we have all the answers and we're trying to yeah. take you somewhere. Uh, so I think basic things, but it's very easy to get lost in that where, you know, that didn't work, let's move on to the next thing. It's like a slow, what is it? Slow journalism, yeah. slow cooking, yeah. Yeah. slow whatever. It's a really important point because when the Sudan, Sudan revolution was happening, you see a lot of Kenyans saying, well, how come, how come, how come? And I think one of the things that I kept reminding people, you know, it's taken 30 years for this revolution to take shape. Um, I have a Sudanese friend who's 35 years old who's been arrested more than 18 times um, since she became an adult. Mm -hmm. And because she's been part of this pro-democracy movement for the last, um, since she turned 18, there are people whose families, whose parents were detained, and then you know, they're being detained, and then the whole family's now out in the streets sort of protesting. Like, it took 30 years for people to, for the broad swathe of society to get that you actually have some power and some agency in the system, and you can actually do something about it. But then when you talk to Sudanese revolutionaries, the other thing that you realize is what Ori was saying is the amount of organizing that went into getting people to show up to things, that went into public education, it's, it's not just about bread. It's about, well, if people know that they have a right to affordable bread, when you take that affordable bread away from them, then they're going to say something about it. When people know, you know, Sudan has one of the most educated populations um, in, in Africa. Mm -hmm. When they know that education is their right and you're selling off their universities and you're uh, privatizing universities and they're losing all of these things, people are going to mobilize against it. And I think that's one of the, the pieces that is really... Um, important to keep reminding people that political change is not an event, it's a process. It's something that requires a great deal of input from multiple people, multiple disciplines, multiple perspectives to keep adding and adding and adding so that there's some kind of space that's made for the action that has to happen so that people know that this is how we protect this space. This is how we defend this yeah. space. Well, in, in that theme of protecting this space, I mean, you earlier uh, talked about you know, the foreign interference, mm -hmm. you know, in your book, you talk about Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm 
how can democracies in Africa protect themselves against these so-called online incursions? And and mm. maybe as well, what what does the public do when that incursion is invited? I think I think one of the most important things is we have to take find ways of taking money out of politics. And that's a very simple framing for a lot of complex processes that need to happen. You look at the United States and you look at the US election system and things really start to go wrong after Citizens United. Things really start to go wrong when the Supreme Court says that um, you know, a, a corporation is a person. And because a corporation is a person, they're allowed to make financial contributions. And it's a violation of that corporation's freedom of speech to limit the amount of money that they can. You know, that's, that distortion of what the point of politics is triggers a wave of people spending absurd amounts of money to shape political opinion. People being able to donate to things, to causes, to... Um, um, that are really about changing how people understand their political realities. We've never had an explicit uh, prohibition on political spending, but how do we make African elections less profitable for Western, uh, Western, for foreign corporations? How do you do that? I don't know. I really don't know what the simple answer is. You know, like, the, I have this statistic that it's in my book that there was a study that established that um, the average presidential candidate in Kenya spends $50,000 on their campaign, so 5 million shillings. The Jubilee Party spent $60,000 on Cambridge Analytica, right? So this British corporation is making more money in a single election and there are a lot of questions about the efficacy of what they did and it, why it matches and how it matches and all of that stuff. But fundamentally, that to me is underscoring the distortion that has occurred, which is African elections are incredibly profit, profitable. Madagascar, incredibly poor. How is it that Andrea Jolina is spending millions of, you know, thousands of dollars on foreign consultants in a country whereby the hospital that he built doesn't have doctors, you know? I think that is going to be, um, and to me, it, the, the real, the, 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 the thread underneath all of that is the idea that making money um, is a moral imperative on its own that doesn't need to be framed or underscored or whatever by other moral imperatives. That, that, that profit-making is in itself a, a normative good, and you don't have to question how that profit is being made. So this, you know, you talk, you read about um, all the people who are involved in these con con political consulting campaigns, whatever, from the, from the UK, the US, or whatever, and they think that I'm just, you know, slay queen. I'm just <laughs> chasing that paper. I'm just, you know, trying to make that money and not interrogating. Well, you know, people are going to die. Hmm. People are going to lose everything. People are going to lose their life savings. People are going to lose access to basic health care. They don't interrogate that. So how do we do that? I don't know, but I think that this is going to be one of the most urgent questions in the political space everywhere, is how do we make politics less profitable? Yeah. And just more How boring. How do we make it less profitable? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and, and let's do or die. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder, I would be interested in whether sort of more like proportional 
representative, you know, where the stakes and not like everything has to happen today. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like one side or the other, and if you're not in, you're out. So not is there less influence where they're more they're differently designed kind mm. of political systems mm. or election cycles i think we have to engage with that you know the money question is important mm. but it's also it, we're kind of in this vicious cycle mm. of you know i mean all the headlights they say you know war chest right yeah uh like you battle know, of the so and so is building a war chest yeah. right yeah. It, are we, for an like it's an election you know and so we've we've not, I guess, thought hard about re redesigning the, the systems, yeah. uh, perhaps in a way that even, even if you're trying to buy influence, it's kind yeah. of unclear who you're targeting and why, because it's not at one center or another. Yeah. Um, and and so thinking about either decentralized designs or different. So one, I think there is also an electoral design in addition mm -hmm. to campaign. Finance, you know, and Kib represents an interesting question of whether you can just raise the cost, whether voters yeah. just raise the cost of their buying so high that it's not even worth it's it. It's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a whole, I'd love to read a book about the political economy of an election. Because there's your third chapter. Because well, there is my fourth chapter. <laughs> because, yeah, notes. there is there is one around, you know, posters, what are all these calculations, t-shirts, yeah. what getting your people to attend your rally, the mobilizers, the f because there's a whole economy. And what's happened is voters have said, okay, we're not going to see you for another five years. Let me cash we it. have about a year where we're collecting. And then, you know, the guy said, now we need to see we're stealing so we can recoup, so mm -hmm. we can go back mm -hmm. and, and win. And so we're in this kind of vicious um, yeah. cycle. Um, and so, you know, do we just raise the costs or do you know, do we make it too expensive, if, yeah. if not legally, yeah. <laughs> by just saying, well, if you want my vote, this yeah. is, this it, is it's not a hundred bob anymore. It's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> like 10,000. Yeah. No, but on a more serious note, you asked, I mean, you know, South Africa, I think, pre presents an interesting example mm. of um, how, at least if not the government, and these were invited, how the public, again, it was media, not media alone. This mm. media, public, judiciary mm. uh, coming together to sort of, you know, kick Bill Pottinger out, right? Um, and so back to the question of institutions, maintaining, even as, you know, if they're not perfect, uh, building lines of defense um, to the things that are working becomes much more critical because in the absence of, like sort of a decent, you know, strong independent media in the absence of a good kind of judiciary that hadn't been compromised yet, even when other institutions were. Uh, then with public pressure, there was something, you know, that happened there. Uh, again, I would say if you're looking at um, uh, sort of the news today and what's going on with the judiciary, it's not by accident, it's not just, you know, pettiness or whatever this realizing, okay, what are the remaining lines of defense um, and how we maybe how do we weaken them um, so that everyone is kind of weekend exhausted. Firefighting. And firefighting. Yeah. You, you know, little just, um, uh, it's called kipindi. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a funko strategy. Like, so we're, we're constantly in a kipindi, yeah. you know, like an episode. episode. And it's working. So we're like moving from one, 
pillage post episode to another to, mm. the, and, and so you 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 the the drains your reserves and you're just like you know what this fight is for somebody else yeah. uh, or you're so weakened that you know seeing opportunities to come together and say but who are these guys what are they doing here yeah. and we don't okay we have our own mess we certainly don't need you coming to fuel yeah. <laughs> our own issues so you go back and you know Kenyans can be quite good at that when they mobilize mm. it, but, not but you, you you see it happening at the lower levels of the devolution with mm. the mca and the wards and sort of up to the I would say probably up to the constituency level. Mm -hmm. It gets a little bit murkier when you get to gubernatorial and national level yeah. because of this impartial transition that we've done, where you know the devolution was never supposed to vest more power in the executive presidency. It was supposed to be the exact opposite. It was supposed to send power down. So, like, if you go to the rural areas, you'll see that people, even in the most, you know, Mandera, Turkana, the most uh, marginal communities, you'll see people say, oh, this guy who's running for MCA, I know him. I He's so-and-so's sister. He's, he's so-and-so's cousin. He's so-and-so's whatever. And we asked him to dig a well last, weekend, last year, and he didn't do it, so we're not going to vote for him. But then... You know, you hear stories about people in Mandera who don't even know who the president is. Like, they don't know. They've never seen him. They have no concept of being involved in this broader conversation. And, you know, they ask you when you visit, how is Kenya? Um, <laughs> what's happening in Kenya? And and so the, 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 the gap between how this stuff is actually happening on the lower levels that people are raising the cost of, of voting and participating more actively in those elections. But how do we then translate that into um, the national votes, especially now that devolution has been identified as an enemy and is now facing all of these resistance, you know, from the executive. Mm -hmm. um, we have, if I was to, 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 capture Kenya's multiple crises in, in, you know, I think we have a crisis of a stalled decolonization. We have a crisis of a stalled transition from authoritarianism. We have a crisis of a stalled, like, this is, you know, when you live here for six months, you kind of think, oh, wow, this is a great place. Things are happening. And you get to the end of the 12 months, and you're like, yeah, but then you keep running into these walls. And these, to me, are all of these crises of, you know, we have started do we have what it takes to finish it? Do we mm. have what it takes to finish the decolonial project? Do we have what it takes to finish this transition from authoritarianism? And I think that's the met those are the meta questions that we kind of have to ask ourselves. Yeah, and we've seen like in past elections, progressive uh, people running but not being elected is sometimes finishing disappointingly with very, very few votes. What's the problem there? Is it is it them or is it Kenyans? No, oh, I, I don't like either of those framings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I think that as I said, the system we're sort of in this horrible flywheel where once it's there, it's so hard to break out of. Where it's you know money, power, access. How do people get to see you, know you, etc. And again, in some ways, there, there is also, if we're honest, the disappointment uh, of the progressives who have, and I, I think that's a big one we don't talk about enough, going, well, we do actually, when you go in and you become something else. Mm -hmm. So there's quite a strong sentiment that at least we know these guys, 
you guys who come and say one thing, we've seen you all come in and we don't recognize, particularly after 2002 when uh, a lot of what was done in civil society went into government. Um, okay. We don't recognize what this thing, something happened here. Mm. Uh, so there's a trust, it's like show us who are the guys who went in and, and you, you can count, right? That who went in and tried or helped Bayako resigned when they yeah. couldn't versus the, um, the, the many people who got compromised or who just yeah. gave up. Or, so I think there is a narrative, a strong one, that they say, hey, we've tried. Mm. But it didn't work out. Yeah, but so show us what's your track record. We'd rather deal with this, guys. Yeah. There's also an acceptance that institutions are kind of not responsive. Mm. And so I'd rather, if I see, um, you know, at least some kind know he'll call and he'll come with the Bowser, the rescue. Mm. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, okay, practically, what I need right now is not your yeah. good intellectual ideas. I need someone who can bring the water, like, now. Mm. Mm. And how would you do that? Or, and they interpret then your ability to deliver services, which again is not irrational, mm. to your proximity to the executive mm. because we've not sort of delinked from that. So I often wonder if we split, you know, and then there's a euphoria that happens. Yeah. We've not, we have the ability to not do six piece, which is I think the most interesting one to me. Mm. Uh, there's no reason for six piece anymore but we vote overwhelmingly, even in an environment mm. where you can pick and choose anyhow, yeah. do your MCA one way, this way, that way. It's starting, I think you saw a split, you know, Nairobi is always yeah. very interesting how people split yeah. their votes. Um, but I wonder what if we had kind of county elections at a different cycle yeah. than national, would we begin to see choices that are not informed by the national mm. party's ability, you know, they can do this once every five years. Yeah. Again, what if you raise the cost? Yeah. I say, oh, you guys, do you want to do this every three years? Every three years. Yeah, yeah. no, no one wants, no to, one do wants that. to do that. And, and so if there's an opportunity to maybe stagger elections or delink, would yeah. we see better choices? But so I think short answer, um, it's, there's a trust deficit. It's, there's yeah. very few examples where the progressives actually kind of delivered. Um, second is the, the acceptance that this is just a money game and um, that national politics is still very dominant. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other piece of the puzzle from a more theoretical perspective is, and, and again, something I talk about in the book, is the erosion of the public sphere mm. and the public space. You need a physical or a metaphorical public square where people can actually have the debates that they need to have. And we really don't have that anymore. The only place where you find um, people gathering as a critical mass of people, independently of their ethnic background, independently of their class background, is in religious institutions, is in churches, is in mosques, is in temples. And, and those spaces have also 
been compromised by the political discourse. You know, the places where people in the in the resistance to authoritarianism had become these very potent spaces for finding people where they are, for giving them the messages, you know, in a very direct way. You know, you had Ndingi Moranzeki preaching against um, excess government excess while the president is in the front row of Holy Family Basilica. You, you, we don't have that anymore. So, you know, we, we had people who were campaigning um, in Nairobi dealing with the reality that everybody lives in a gated community. And how do you access a gated community? How do you do door knocking in a place where you can't get to the people? And you're a progressive candidate. How do you navigate a privatized public sphere? And the fight against public spaces is both metaphorical and practical. When they, they propose to build a private road over a public park, that is both a metaphorical and a physical manifestation of the, the, the tensions that we are dealing with as how, how do you build a polity? How do you build a, a polity in a space where there is very little space for people to meet each other where they are? Um, I think that's a, a, a really underlying challenge in building progressive politics in Kenya. Because, again, I go back to Sudan, but I also you saw this in Chicago when, when the organizers were mobilizing against Rahm Emanuel. People were campaigning on trains and on buses and on public spaces. Can you still do that? You know, if you try to campaign in a church in Kenya, will they let you? You know, when a politician so-and-so is, is scheduled to speak and deliver a briefcase full of money. Um, these are some of the more theoretical questions that we also have to process about what's happened in Kenya over the last 15, 20 years. Um, I just want to have a last question before I get to your uh, final comments. I know this is something that you two are really, um, you know, been following very keenly and working in this space. And that is to do with um, data protection. In fact, I saw a headline, newspaper headline, which was, uh, so the headline read, UN ranks Kenyans as the most careless internet users globally. <laughs> um, cracking headline. <laughs> But it was, it was all just about how people are not privacy sensitive. Now, just a few days ago, as, as we have this conversation, the president signed a data protection law. I'm just wondering, you know, what you think about that? I'm still reading the law. Um, I just uh, got it a couple of days ago. And um, on the whole data protection conversation in Kenya has been a very interesting one because it throws up all of these things that we're talking about that even the most people don't realize that it's an important political conversation. Vast majority of people don't. The few people who do realize that it's an important conversation are being bombarded by information. We had two bills making their way, one from the Senate, one from Parliament. You had um, trying to connect what's happening in Kenya with abstract conversations about what's happening in data protection in other parts of the world. So you have to learn, you know, a whole new uh, discourse and then sort of try and domesticate that discourse. So the way in which the debate, the debate, if there was any sort of conversation happened, was that um, there was a lot of realization in the data, the digital rights space, that we needed a data protection law because people had a vague sense that something bad was happening, that why am I getting SMSs from this private corporation when I didn't sign up for their services and then why do I have to pay 50 shillings to unsubscribe? You see these complaints, this whole vague sense that something's happening with my phone number that I'm not comfortable with, something's happening with my email address that I'm not comfortable with, why am I signing in a guest book at an office and then the security guard is sort of calling me 
there was a vague sense that there was something that was missing in the way in which Kenyans' information is being gathered and, and being used. But the gap between sort of being able to articulate this as a challenge and as a challenge that affects everybody created this lag. So the, the laws were making their way through parliament and you listen to the debates and you would think, these guys don't understand what's happening either. The legislatures don't understand what's happening either. Every bill that goes through parliament that has the word data or cyber in it is an opportunity to punish bloggers. Everything that, that <laughs> says anything, it could be, you know, regulation of electronic uh, tax <laughs> registers. Oh, you know, bloggers, they say bad things about us. We should, you know, yeah. include that in there. And so the bill, that's kind of why it's landed with this soft thud that it's happened. And people in the digital rights space, we're very conscious that something has happened. But it's come in a fog of confusion and ambivalence, both from the part side of the citizens and from the side of the legislators. And so, like I said, I haven't read the, the, the final version of the bill. I do know that there are a lot of questions about, especially the punitive measures, um, that are in there, which is always the case in Kenya, and goes back to what Ori was saying about governing with contempt. Mm -hmm. Not every legislature has to have $10,000 fines attached to it. Not everything has to be an opportunity to punish people. Like, it could, the, the whole idea of data protection was not to just punish violations, was to create, is to create a conversation between the data as a prode projection of the citizen, as a, as a projection of the citizen in the digital space. And so you have the same rights framework as an analog person as you do in the digital space. That's the point. It's not just punishment all the time. Um, so it's going to be a couple of days, I think, of parsing through, for me at least, um, because I want to be very careful that I think it's important to have a data protection law. I'm not convinced that this is the data protection law that we deserve. Um, but then again, that just goes back to um, what is it that deserving looks like? You know, what is, what is, <laughs> what is the, <laughs> you know, maybe, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minefield. Um, and I think, again, overall, what I would say is I'm just not convinced that this legislature understands what the digital space is just end-to-end. -end. I think if we gave them a chance, we would probably hear that statement, the internet is a series of tubes, and a tubes for punishing people. And so I think it's very important for people to remain vigilant on this conversation. One of the papers reported that story in a very interesting way. It was President Science Data Protection Bill, and I think Amazon opens some... Yeah data center or something so it was kind of like you know yeah now, now they can open the center mm. because of the bill which was very disappointing for me mm. by the media actually yeah. um this is one of the cases in sometimes in imperfect ways where there was a fair amount of engagement mm -hmm. by the different communities that were affected uh whether it was tech businesses big corporates startups uh, kicked in it, civil society, um, towards the end we had the lawyers come in through the lawyers hub, analysis, writing, pushbacks, lobbying, um, like I said, not, but there was, there was participation and there was constant, um, sort of challenging, trying to mm -hmm. reconcile the different versions for such a mess, mm -hmm. pass through it, uh, Public education, not perfect, you know, because 
people are used to, yeah, sure, if I'll get a loan, you can mm -hmm. do whatever you want on my phone, which is, you know, valid. Or <laughs> you know, so, so used to transacting, you know, so they see data as kind of transactional and mm -hmm. they're happy to pay that cost because mm -hmm. what choice do they have, really? Uh, but there was a fair amount of kind of in an ideal world, how we'd like to see that engagement on yeah. every bill that comes. And it was a seven-year kind of mm. process. And some of the delay was because people kept pushing by. I said, guys, we'd rather have no bill than this, this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so to frame it that, you know, thanks to Amazon. Mm. <laughs> we finally, <laughs> we we finally, finally have, have a data have protection. Yeah, that, yeah. That was, I mean, none of the coverage was completely yeah. ahistorical. Um uh, so it's like again agency like oh so now we're just we're just waiting for the benevolence of yeah. a multinational for uh, so is so policy for who okay so is it the protection act for amazon or is it for us i mean there is and i don't think that's amazon's fault that's just like they just happen to be there <laughs> uh how we then again tell our story and back yeah. to the media yeah. was that a missed opportunity to they were not engaged in the seven year period pro or they rather were they were absolutely they absolutely were i would have loved to see a nice like you know yeah the, the journey towards data protection yeah. here yeah. sort of the key points Inter connecting it to the international conversation yeah interview a few people and say hi what do you think about this what's come mm -hmm. out are you mm -hmm. concerned this is a do my number conversation going on it is. um and so that was such a missed opportunity because it's very then discouraging if you've sort of done all this mobilizing interacting mm -hmm. and whatever and one that you get the sense that the government at the end of the day was responding to somebody else and, yeah. and not you the taxpayer, the the stakeholder, or whoever, or that your role to the if it's a halfway decent bill has been completely erased and now looks yeah. like a very benevolent gift, <laughs> from uh, yeah, from above, <laughs> you know, to and so it's important to the extent that we ended up with maybe an imperfect but a robust. I haven't engaged with it fully either. Yeah. It'd be good to sort of say here's how we can begin to, again test the constitution, engage with participation, uh, here were all the processes, here mm -hmm. were the, all the submissions. It's very boring and sexy work, but so critical yeah. um, as we think about how do we engage and build um, this country. So uh, that my, the, I found the framing and the reporting and the, all <laughs> okay. of it rather, rather curious. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, one thing that I'm really obsessed about at the moment is how how do we measure journalism? Like, what, what's oh, the God. goal of our journalism? We could be here for another I know, hour. So. I know. Anyway, that was just my way of selling the second uh, podcast. <laughs> so, so there you go. So we'll gather here uh, in a few months. Um, so, yeah. Um, well, we are just about to uh, finish. I mean, this year is just about to end. And I just wondered whether you don't mind sharing with us like what were your highest moments or achievements this year and maybe project what's going to happen next year like what do you see as the one big thing that people should be paying attention to especially in Africa on a personal <laughs> level my, my highest achievement was trying to get out of the blanket of heavy cynicism 
<laughs> that I started the year off with, and boy, was it heavy. <laughs> uh, You've just had your Damascus walk, and uh, mm, here you are. And I said, okay, you know, let's do some. <laughs> there has to be stuff that it's it, not all is lost. Uh, so I think fighting cynicism because the the work that needs to be done can. I believe I always try and start my work from a place of what is possible. Um, and so I think, and I, and I was, it started off the year, I think, in a place of nothing. I mean, just mm. let's wrap it up and go home and, you know. Uh, the, so cynicism, I think, uh, fighting that and trying to sort of be inspired but all the good work that's happening in very different spaces, whether it's the creatives, new interesting startups and ideas. So that's on a personal level. I think uh, I'm hoping what we're building, along with others, um, the Media Lab becomes something special. Um, where, you know, again, we've, there's a tendency to sort of engage with the easier things and the more exciting, shiny things. Uh, but this is, is not going to be easy, but if we get it right, um, not just for Kenya, but I think for the region, we're certainly seeing the opportunities to connect with other folks. Um, seeding or beginning to do something about what a healthier media ecosystem looks like in Kenya, I think. So you're optimistic that this, this will finally you know, bring those key um... oh, I'm not ready to make grand statements <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm optimistic What's that, we'll, that we'll have got good coffee and yeah. and great Tea. content and nice happy hours every Friday uh, and we will find each other yeah and we realize that there's no Messiah coming to save us this is it have to work together. This is it. Uh, <laughs> this is it. It's us. And that we will remember that. And, and we'll find each other and say yeah. it's up to us to sort of, yeah. you know, mend, the, mend what needs to be mended and build what needs to be built. Fantastic. Angela? Hmm. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's a tough act to follow. Um, I mean, my, my high is very selfish. I've had a really good run with my book and not just the actual selling of the book, but also being able to enter very important conversations about where the world is and where the world is going. Um, it is a book about Kenya, but it has allowed sort of me to plug into a lot of key conversations about democracy and about the future of politics and the future of tech in politics. So um, it's a very selfish high, but it's been wonderful. Um, sort of my projections are a little bit less optimistic. <laughs> um, I think that we are, again, as humanity, we are entering a, a decision point mm. about what we want our futures to look like. And this is, to me, manifesting as protest, as resistance, as um, and resistance cutting both ways, both the people who are in the streets and the power you know, power resisting trans transitions and power resisting change. And I think, as with any other important change, it's not going to be painless. I think that the, uh, I've been meditating a lot about Antonio Gramsci's saying that um, the new, the old world is dying and the new one is not yet born. 
now is the time for demons. That to me captures where we are right now, that there's a systemic change that's happening, but it's not complete. And we still haven't quite discerned what the next phase of political organization or social organization is going to look like. And so there's going to be all these demons sort of flying around. And, uh, you know, to pick up on what Ori said, it's going to be down to us as individual members of societies, as collectives, as groups, as, you know, communities to discern what kind of future we want to live in. Um, but in the interim, while that decision making is happening, I, I expect there to be a lot more um, birth pangs, mm. you know, mm. as the new world kind of begins to take shape. Yeah, and I think I didn't, uh, the projection question, I think my answer is going to be we're entering a season of discontent mm -hmm. yeah, next absolutely. year. Absolutely. Um, and that's uh, on the continent all over the world. And it, it, it's starting here. Yeah. It's starting yeah. in Kenya, yeah. uh, definitely in the region. There, there is a season of, of discontent as at an event um, uh, last night um, celebrating Yash Palgai. And, you know, there's some jokes about the bees. You know, so many things happened in 2017, I've never forgotten the bees. Was, there's an incident, I think, where as, as part of the um, dealing with sort of cops and whatever, people, like, uh, opened up hives. hives. <laughs> uh, I forget what the incident was, but there was a tactic in a, in a protest somewhere <laughs> that involved bees. And the, But the speaker said, you know, um, forget the bees that young people in the continent this time they're the swarm mm. Mm. and uh, yeah. and they're coming mm. and uh, you know it remains to be seen when and how and whether they will sting or mm. not and I thought that was uh, really a, sort of a powerful visual mm. uh, but there is you, you know it's a the, the natives are restless. Mm. Wow. Bleak. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I was like, I, you, you know, can you mean that with that? No, <laughs> no, but no, but with the, I think, but at the out, you, you know, and and with with the, perhaps if you think about it as a birthing process, yeah. and that there is some pain. I, I mm. don't think we'll end up kind of all doom and gloom, mm. but there is, as I said, it's a season. Um, I think it's a season. It's a season that, that will hopefully yeah. result in, you know, positive things, but there yeah. is a season, I think, yeah. of, of, let me say, let me not be so dire, uh, of discontent. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, we've done it. Oh. That's all, folks, for 2019, but look out for my interview with Nanjiro Sambuli after this. Thanks a lot for listening and thanks for sharing the podcast. I'll be back next year with more interviews about the media, tech and politics in Africa. Happy Christmas for those who are celebrating and all the best in the new year. Until next time, asante sana and bye-bye.